0: We're continuing the Gospel of Luke today. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 10, 1 to 16. That's uh, page 548 in your Pew Bibles. I don't have it out on your note sheet. It's a longer text, and I wanted some uh, space to write. Um, So if you'd turn there, 548, Luke 10, 1 to 16. The title of the message today is Disturbing the Peace by Sharing It. This happens to you pretty frequently um, when uh, your friends and my friends. Uh, from different uh, faiths that are similar but not the same as ours, come to our door and they knock and they ask for a moment of our time, which we never have. Um, but they're trying to—they're trying to share, right? They're sharing with us. They want to help us. They want to be our friend. And—and and the thing is, we find that disturbing. It disturbs—it disturbs our peace, peace in my household. I don't—you know—I don't like it when people come to my door unannounced. Period. My ho- my home—is my castle. And I don't want any invaders. Well, unfortunately, uh, Jesus sends out some invaders. So let's read together. If you wouldn't mind standing, we're going to be at Luke 10, 1 to 16. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, but behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace, shalom, to this house. And if a son, a child of peace, is there, your peace will rest there. But if not, your peace will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his, lab- of his wages. Don't go from house to house, trying to get a better and better digs. Whatever city you enter and they received you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But look out. Whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, city. The kingdom of God came near to you. And I tell you, friends, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you and had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, my followers, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, him who sent me. You may be seated. Interesting tension in this text. It starts out very exciting. Jesus is going to send out some of his followers, and really they're going to be paving the way for him. Uh, just a few verses before we're told that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's been up in the northern part of the country in Galilee, and now he's he's going right to the cross. He knows where he has to go, he knows what has to happen, and he's set his face there and he's charging down. But on the way, he's going to need a place to stay. Uh, In Luke, we know that the Son of Man has no place to to lay his head. Well, he needs a place to lay his head, and so he's got to find out where he can go uh, for the night to get some supplies and whatnot and to rest. And so he sends out 70, 70 people to go before him and pave the way. And this sounds like an exciting thing. He tells them to heal the sick. Later on in the chapter next week, we'll find out that they're uh, expelling demons. They're, they're, they're sending demons out of, of the cities and the people. Um, they're bringing the message of the kingdom of God, forgiveness of sins, time to repent, friends. The day is at hand. They are bringing peace. Jesus says, you're bringing peace, you're offering peace, finally peace. And so there's this weird tension, because on the one hand, it sounds like what the disciples, the followers, are going to be doing is going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. It's going to be exciting. And yet, the whole half, of the, uh, half part of the, the text, the bottom half of the text, is fear. Jesus is worried. Things might not go well. Now, if I were Jesus, I'd be worrying not about uh, their reception, but about their competence. Um, If I were Jesus, I'd be worrying about the kinds of followers uh, Neil has talked about, you know, people who are ready to bring down fire and brimstone, so they're a little bit trigger-happy with the power of God, which is frightening. Uh, They often don't know what they're doing. In fact, as we go through Luke, they're going to get worse and worse. (laughs) And if I were Jesus, I'd be like, ah, yeah, I don't know if this is a good idea. Uh, But that's not, it doesn't seem to be, that's what he's upset about, that's what he's worried about. In fact, what he's worried about is that he's sending out little peaceful sheep among wolves, He's sending them out to places where they're going to be rejected. This message of joy, of salvation, of peace is going to cause hostility. It could cause violence. Why? How is it that Jesus' followers are sharing the peace and they're met with hostility and rejection? Jesus expects them to be disturbing the peace. When they share it. Well, uh, we need to know what it means to, to be sharing the peace. What is it about this peace that's so offensive? That's so dangerous? That's so upsetting? Well, peace, uh, in, our, in our day, we tend to think of peace as something like the absence of conflict, the absence of war. Uh, we want to be people who are at peace, meaning we're not fighting. Well, and that's the first thing in your uh, note sheet. Peace or Shalom in Hebrew is not only absence of conflicts. Now, peace is something more in the scriptures. Peace is the way your life ought to be. Peace is what it should be to be living the way God wants you to live. We've actually talked about this before, and I have two synonyms. Peace might be flourishing. You know, that, that, uh, that life that's, that's just bubbling over with satisfaction, with joy, with provision. Uh, in, in, in John's Gospel and then in, in, in the Johannian literature, we get abundant life. You will have life and have it abundantly. That's peace. That's shalom. If you think in the Old Testament, guys like Abraham were people of peace. A guy like Job in fact, before everything was taken away from him. That's peace. God's provided for you. God uh, brings you prosperity, blessing, joy, community, pure worship, a bright future. You have confidence that God will protect you just as he always has. Well, that kind of peace sounds really good. There's a problem with that peace, though. Shalom presupposes freedom. Peace can't coexist with oppression, with chains. In fact, uh, you, know, you notice that if you look at peace offerings right, in the Old Testament, if you go back to the Old Testament, you look in Leviticus, a little bit in Exodus, um, and, and there's this whole set of, of laws that, that govern the way that the Israelites do peace offerings, shalom offerings. And really what we see is, is God says, you give me these peace offerings, uh, you sacrifice, I think it's a young bull most of the time. And, and in response, God's going to receive this, this gift, and, and God's going to shower you with blessing. He says, I will bless you. That's uh, Exodus 20, 24. Um, and notice then also that the peace offerings never happen outside of the land of Israel. Right? It's interesting. No one talks about peace offerings until what has happened. The people have been liberated from Egypt, They're on their way out of slavery. And so now it's appropriate to talk about the possibility of a life of shalom, of peace, because now it can happen. And that's a problem. See, uh, here's here's the bad news, guys. The bad news for the people of Israel They can't have peace yet. Why? Because they're owned. They are ruled. They are enslaved. We're going to find out a little bit later in the chapter um, that really the problem with Israel, demons. (laughs) Didn't expect that one. Demons! Demons are the real problem in Israel, and by extension, the whole world See, uh, all right, so in, 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 in Jesus' day, right, so uh, people are hearing, you know, this, this message of the kingdom of God, and they're stoked, because they actually, they agree, they're, they're enslaved, but the problem is they think of enslavement, they think of slavery as what? The Roman Empire. If only we could get these jerks off, you know, take their boot off my neck, then, then suddenly I'd be great, I'd be set. You know, and we probably think this way in our own lives. Um, it's probably not Rome, but uh, it's, it's something, there's something in our life, well, if we, I could just get rid of that. Then I'd finally be at peace. I'd finally be, have the abundant life that I you know, desire, that I want, right? Well, for the Jews, that's Rome. Um, but Jesus has a different diagnosis for the illness. It's not Rome that's at issue. It's demons. And as an aside, uh, just as a note here, uh, the first verse, it says... Um, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Well, there's a big debate in scholarship about whether or not the original text said that Jesus sent 70 or 72. Um, Yeah, I know it's just critical stuff here. Uh, We're talking about uh, life and death, um, which is what most of scholarship is these days. Uh, They're really focusing on the the big issues. Um, But let me just... Just for a second, step back and, and, and discuss that for just one second. Um, in the uh, Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, uh, the, the word that's used there to, for the number is 70. But then in the Septuagint, which is written about 200 BC, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it says 72. It adds a duo, the Greek, for du- Greek for two. And so the question is, um, our, our, our manuscripts of Luke split about half and half. Um, and we know that our manuscripts in Luke, what Jesus is referring to, is a set of uh, chapters in Genesis, Genesis 10 to 11. It's one of those really boring chapters, or two chapters. You know the ones I'm talking about? Like you're trying to do the whole, like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, right? And you, and you get to the one where it's like, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. Who begot so-and-so? And you're like, oh, oh, oh. oh okay, why did that make its way into Scripture? Ah. Uh, well, that uh, Genesis 10 to 11 is it's the grandsons of Noah. And uh, it's two mighty chapters, um, and in those two chapters, depending on whether you're reading the Hebrew or the Greek, there are 70 or 72 grandsons of Noah. Okay, well, that's interesting, yes. um, It turns out that in later Jewish tradition, what they, they decided was that the number of nations in the world was that number. So basically, each one of the grandsons of Noah was the father of a nation, and if you knew all the grandsons of Noah then you knew the number and the names of all the nations of the world, right? So it's either 70 or 72. Well, fast forward uh, to the writing of the New Testament, and as scribes are trying to copy down um, what Jesus is saying, they're aware that there's these two traditions. And so they're trying to figure out, did Jesus really say 70 or 72? And so some of them decided he said 72, or sent 72, and some of them decided that he sent 70. It doesn't matter. So... (laughs) The point, though, the point of all this is to say, why does Jesus send that number, or whichever number it is? The the answer is he wants to symbolically signify that he's sending his followers to the whole world. All the nations are getting his message, his peace. And that's important because Jesus wants to symbolize not just Israel's infection, Israel's problem, the whole world's problem. Israel thinks that they've got a good thing going because they have the law and Moses, but they don't. And because they don't, because they've failed in their mission, the whole world is out of whack. The whole world lacks peace. There is no shalom, no peace anywhere. It starts here in Israel, but it has infected the whole world. The whole world is under demonic rule. Every last bit of it. And the only hope is for Jesus and his people to set the whole world free. Now, when we think demonic oppression, we tend to think specifically of the stories in the Gospels where somebody, a person, has had their will overtaken by a demon. And that does happen. But demonic forces are about more than getting one person. In fact, a demon that possesses one person is kind of bush league. Like the Oakland Athletics. (laughs) And possibly the Angels. I don't follow baseball, so I don't care. <laughs> uh, yeah. See, if you just take over one person, you know, good for you. Nailed it, right? But if you're the enemy, if you're Satan, and you're one of his minions, you've got bigger targets. You've got bigger things you want to deal with. And so the real demonic oppression, the really most powerful, most dangerous demonic oppression... Is insidious, it is deep, and it is pervasive. It's in your note sheets. The most powerful demonic oppression is insidious, it is deep, and it is pervasive. See, the way this kind of demonic oppression works is it's subtle. It's behind the scenes. You got a good thing going... And then, sort of like in uh, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, there's somebody who just starts whispering just a few things to subtly corrupt, to subtly change uh, the, the good values of this institution or this community of people, to get it just a little bit off course. And then, and then that, that, that little voice directs and amplifies the corrupting power of sin so that over time, something that started out as beautiful and good becomes twisted, wicked, and evil. And the worst part is that the people who are a part of this, the people who are under this influence, don't even know it because it happened so slowly. Things like unending illness, separation from the community of faith, Commitment to money instead of God, a lack of hospitality and generosity, these, failure with holiness towards, in our sexual lives, these are all things that are symptoms of a subtle, pervasive, long-time corruption by the power of sin directed, amplified by the forces of the enemy. And everywhere Jesus has been, we're going to see this in a moment, that's what he's seen. He's seen priests who are corrupt, and I was going to say pastors, but that would never happen, who are corrupt. He's seen institutions, political powers and elites, who are corrupt. He's seen people at the bottom who've been kept at the bottom their whole lives. He's seen people enwrapped by sin, and the worst part is they don't even realize it. And so Israel has no peace, no shalom, because you can't be at peace when you are in bondage. You must be free to have peace. Jesus looks around, he's got a guy in the graves cutting himself, he lives in the tombs. He looks around, there's a woman who's so desperate for inclusion that she muscles through the crowd to grab him. He's got a tax collector Who's so tired of being thought of as a traitor and an enemy of the people that he's willing to give up everything just to get back in? This is a world that is utterly broken, and this is God's people. Imagine the rest of the world is in even worse shape oppression always and everywhere. War of all against all. So Jesus has a solution. The peace invasion. It's interesting, you look at the way uh, peace is used. This is a very strange use of peace. Uh, look at verses five and six, right? It says, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son, literally who we ask son of peace, is there, that's a Greek idiom, it just means someone who shares peace's DNA if you will. A son of peace is there. Your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. That's a very strange thing. It's almost like peace is this, it's almost like an object. It's almost like, it's, it's more than just, um, there's right relations between Scott and I. Scott and I are not at war, so we're at peace. It's more than that. It's something that, that Jesus' followers carry with them. It's embedded in who they are. And so wherever they go, there's like a little peace field. Right? That sort of surrounds them. And if they're in a house, that peace field envelops that house and gives it, brings with it, the shalom of God. And if they're rejected from the house, their peace just gets sent back too. Uh, to bring it to today's uh, headlines, I mean, peace is a little bit like a virus. And, you know, the popular one right now is Ebola. Right? This is the converse of Ebola, where Ebola kills and maims and creates fear. Uh, Jesus' peace does exactly the opposite, right? But it's the same sort of idea applies. It's like you can get infected with it. Just by being with Jesus' followers, you can get that, that peace to come, to come into your life, to be a part of you. And if you reject them, then you'll not have any of that peace. If you're a child of peace, you're the kind of person who's got a peace-shaped hole in your heart, to paraphrase St. Augustine. You've been looking your whole life for this kind of life and it's nowhere to be found and suddenly one of Jesus' people shows up at your door and you're like, yes. Come in, brother or sister. Come in and I will take care of you as long as I can because you've got what I'm looking for. But there's a converse to that. If there are children of peace, they're children of not peace. Here's a mind-boggling idea. Imagine for a second that what Jesus is saying is that some people hate shalom. Imagine that for a second. Imagine for a second that Jesus is literally saying there are some people, maybe even it's even most people, and they, at the deepest core of themselves, hate peace. When, when it comes up at their door, they shut, they slam it, get away. It threatens them, it hurts them. How is that possible? How could it be, I mean, friends, do we not long for peace? How could it be that there are actually people out there who hate it, who hate the very idea of it, who hate the second they experience it, they're, they're, they're lost, they, they get angry. Why, how could that possibly be? Well, I want to suggest to you because that's how The enemy works. The enemy takes you a little bit at a time, corrupts this, twists that, makes that a little wicked, that a little off track, and sooner or later you come to the place where you're a slave and you don't know it. And when someone offers you freedom, you back away. You're like Dracula with the cross or garlic or whatever it is. Some chains, friends, are light. Some handcuffs don't chafe all the time. Some bonds are invisible. There are slaves who love to hide behind their chains. This is, you know, there are many, uh, there are many addictions, there are many slaveries that are brutally, it's brutally obvious how awful they are, you know, Drug addiction, for example. An addiction to, to violence or sex. Very very obvious how they destroy lives, right? Uh, Soren Kierkegaard talked about the sickness unto death. He was a Lutheran uh, in the 19th century, uh, philosopher and theologian. And he, he talked about th- there's a kind of utter slavery and despair that people have. And what makes it so de- uh, what makes it so debilitating is that we don't even know we have it. We almost, almost think we're happy. And yet there is a lostness and an emptiness and a a self-inward focusedness that, that cripples us. It's a sickness and it takes you to death. And doctors can't help you because you don't know you have it. want to suggest to you that the reason people don't like or aren't going to like the followers' peace is because they've caught that illness. Interesting. Uh, so, okay, you, you, the followers are going to go, and when they're received, they're going to bring peace, they're going to bring abundant life, right? And when they're rejected, uh, they're going to wipe, we'll t- talk a little bit about this in a second, they're going to wipe the dust off their feet, and they're going to tell... Um, the people of the city, what's what. And, and, and then Jesus has a word for those cities. He says, Woe to you, you know, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But it will be more po- tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell. Well, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities. Jesus hasn't visited them. Chorazin, which is another, it's a synonym for Capernaum. So Bethsaida and Capernaum, well, if we've been reading the gospel up to now, we know that Jesus has been there. And you might be forgiven for having read through the gospel of Luke and completely missed the part where Capernaum and Bethsaida kicked Jesus out and sent him packing. In fact, if you read back, you're going to see that he's done some amazing things in those places. Uh, I think in Bethsaida I think that's where he, no, Capernaum is where he heals uh, Peter's mother in law, exercises a demon. Um, and in uh, Bethsaida, I think he, what does he do? He just did it. It was another exorcism. I can't go, we can go back. But he does some amazing things, right? It's awesome. So you might think, well, Jesus, why are you calling these places out? Well, Luke hasn't been telling us the whole truth, friends. Luke's been holding a little bit of something back about Jesus' career. Maybe the disciples are getting a little bit um, discouraged because, and this is in your note sheets, so far Jesus has been failing to get a large number of committed followers. Yeah, the tragic truth is that when Jesus is in Bethsaida and Capernaum, the people are looking at him and they're like, and for the most part, they're like, "Oh, it's really exciting. I love what you're doing. Um, that sounds great." And then Jesus is like, "Hey, repent and uh, you know live this way," and they're like. No thanks, keep going, pal. We'll wait for the next one. That's what most people have been doing. Now, the fact that Jesus uh, uses Capernaum uh, and, and Chorazin indicates that he's, try- and, uh, Beth said it, he's, he's trying to do symbolically like the whole of Galilee, all the places he's been. He's taking a, whole, a look, a step back, a look at his whole ministry, and he's saying, the whole thing, what has it amounted to? What, I got 70, 72 of you guys? That's it? Here, the the living Word of God has come, offering salvation to the world. And I've come up with seventy-two, maybe plus twelve, and their families. So you know, a couple hundred. Failure in 20th, 21st century, you know, Southern California. You know, if you got that church and you can't, you, know, you can't break the two hundred person. <laughs> really? Come on. If we look at things in terms of uh, in terms of numbers and influence and power, Jesus career isn't doing well. And so now maybe we understand his warning to his disciples. When he's worried about them, it's because he knows what's in store. Number five on your note sheet, Jesus is worried because God's offer of peace is met by rejection and hostility by those who are satisfied with the status quo. Jesus is worried because God's offer of peace is met by rejection and hostility by those who are satisfied with the status quo. I think one of the reasons that, uh, it's, that Jesus tells the parable of, of the soils, you know, the, goods, the parable of the sower of the soils, um, is because he's describing in a lot of ways uh, what's going on in his own ministry as he's in northern Galilee. There are people who are excited to hear the word of the kingdom of God. They think that's great. At, the first, at first, peace, shalom, that sounds awesome. But as soon as we start to dig down into what that means, suddenly people start to go, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for this. You're, you're talking about... Whoa. Hey man, I got things going really well right now. I, I was hoping for maybe a little more of an upper, but radical life change? Woo, no thank you. And Jesus looks at that and says, you know, some seeds, they take root quickly and then, get, and then they die out. Other seeds, oh yeah, man, I'm ready for the life change. I'm ready for repentance. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then, you know, two to, to six weeks in, it's getting harder and harder and I lose my will. And... Gone. And there's some people who hear peace and they know what Jesus is talking about, and they immediately hate it. And they say, No thanks, move along, pal. You're disturbing the peace. Jesus worried because he knows he's sending his followers into the furnace. He's worried because so far, Satan has been winning. Satan's had a head start, granted. His minions have been corrupting the people of Israel for hundreds and now thousands of years. And that corruption is so deep, and it is so insidious, and it is so pervasive, that when the Son of God enters their midst and offers them shalom, life-changing, radical, full, abundant life, they kick him out. Israel's got Stockholm Syn- Syndrome. You like that. That's The, the best movies about um, bank heists are the ones where the guy comes in and he takes over the place and um, usually Denzel Washington's outside working for the FBI or, or whomever, and he's, uh, you know, well I'll get you a large pizza, no big deal. Yeah, you just let me know what you need. Right? Um, Dog Day Afternoon, right? De Niro, isn't he in that? I think, okay, and so he he's inside the bank And he's got the hostages. And at first, the hostages are terrified. They're like, this guy's got an AK 47. Whoa, he's bad news. But then, you know, they start to talk. And, uh, wow, I had no idea that um, things were so bad for you. Gosh, you really have had it rough. (sighs) Thanks for taking me hostage. You're amazing. (laughs) Wow, the best day of my life. You're, you're, you're a really swell guy, and outside Denzel's like, are you really serious. <laughs> this guy's threatening your lives, and, and and yet, and yet, the people inside form a bond with their captor because they see something that they like in that guy, and suddenly their hearts and their minds are twisted in such a way that they'd rather be inside the bank with a gun pointed to their head with this clown than to go out with Denzel. Israel is under Stockholm syndrome. Israel's got a bunch of people, a bunch of institutions that are corrupted and twisted and wicked, and they love it that way. They don't want to be free. Because freedom entails all kinds of awful things. Awful things like generosity and hospitality and holiness and faith, hope, and love. Who wants that when it comes down to it? Because that's hard. They're in love with the demons who rule them. And worst of all, they've stopped even realizing it. Jesus knows that his followers are going to get kicked around. And so he says, when it happens, when it happens, here's what you're going to do. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, this is verse 10, you go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. This is literally going like this. But they're going to do it in public. They're going to go in the middle of town and be like, which is the opposite of what the baseball guys do. Take that, umpire. But the meaning is the same. Uh, The meaning is that this is unclean. This is corrupt. This is wicked. You people are in the thrall of the enemy. It literally is. That's what what Jews would do when they came into contact with uh, the unclean. The unclean would not accommodate them, they would be required to go and they wipe the dust off their feet, because the dust itself is preventing them from being a part of, of true community and true worship. And so they symbolically are showing the person, you're threatening my my life, my, my worship and community life. Interesting, it says that uh, you know, it's going to be worse uh, for Chorazin and Bethsaida than Sodom. And we think of Sodom as like, the worst ever. Well, I want to suggest to you that Sodom, in Jewish tradition, was not their, their main sin was not sexual, although it included that. Their main, sh- main sin was a lack of hospitality. You know, these two strangers come in, and instead of welcoming them in like normal people ought to, they, the people of Sodom are going to do some really mean things to them. Right? And, and so Jews look at that, and they're like the opposite of Abraham. Sodom is a place that's inhospitable. And now Jesus is saying... Here I am, the word of God, the son of God, and you're being inhospitable to me, inhospitable to my followers. You reject them, you reject me, you reject me, you reject God. And then, the coup d'etat, right, is when Jesus says this. Okay, so you've wiped off your feet. And you turn around in public, and everyone's looking at you, being like, Yeah, get going, man. We don't like what, you've, what you're selling. You say, Friends, weep and gnash your teeth because the kingdom of God just walked through. Heaven was here, and you didn't like it, it hurt you. It bothered you. Heaven comes to Capernaum. And to the people there, it feels like hell. Which tells you something about them and not about heaven. And that's how we understand the paradox. God's offer of peace brings rejection and hostility from who? The people who love the status quo. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when Neil talked about uh, the garrison demoniac. At the end of the story, you know, this man's been set free from demons, right? This should be awesome. Everyone in the village comes out and is like, hey, Jesus, get out of here. This is terrible. Why? Because Jesus sent all those demons and the pigs and ruined their economy. They're like, oh, I love liberation, but not when it hurts my pocketbook. Move along, crazy prophet. Yeah, no, it's great for that guy, but what about the rest of us? See, Jesus brings the peace of God and disturbs the peace doing it. Um, so, of course, you know, one of the questions we have to ask is are we, are we in Stockholm Syndrome? Number six in your note sheets do we have Stockholm Syndrome? Are we in the bank? And looking at our captor and being like, oh, you're amazing. When Denzel's trying to get us out. Is that where we are? And I want to suggest to you that the, probably the, I mean, look, human beings have an infinite capacity for self-deception. Gosh, I mean, how great do I think I am when it's obvious to the rest of you how wrong I am about that. <laughs> right? I mean, it, it, so, so clearly we've got a problem. Yes? Clearly we've got a problem. Namely being able to look inside and being like, have i gone into stockholm syndrome cuz the person who's got stockholm syndrome doesn't know it they really like the captor it's everybody else around them who knows that they're crazy so how do we know well i want to suggest to you that in luke what we we've got to see clearly and one of the ways we can do that is look for these symptoms the symptoms that jesus has been addressing all the way up to luke 10 he's looking for people he's looking at people who are lacking in generosity lacking in hospitality who don't feel the need to repent who already are holy. They don't recognize their own holiness. And when we say holiness, that can be you know, very broad. I would suggest things like um, you know, your personal willingness to I don't know, follow the Ten Commandments. Probably sexual holiness is a big deal here. So if, if, if you're the kind of person, if you're really honest with yourself, and you're lacking in generosity, hospitality, repentance, and holiness, especially sexual holi- holiness, you very well might have Stockholm Syndrome, and you need to think about that. That's step one and step two is the hardest one. It is repenting and changing your life. Whoa, beat the sheep sermon. Sorry guys. You know, come out here and just attack. Attack, attack, attack like a like a vicious hound. I got good news. See we cut this text off right in the middle. Looks like it's real bad, doesn't it? You know, people are going to get, the followers of Jesus are going to be rejected. All of Israel is caught up in Stockholm syndrome. The demonic powers have won. Evil is pervasive. There's no hope. When they come back, this is what Jesus says. My favorite text in the whole Bible. I think that's true, by the way. I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Jesus sends the 70 or 72 out, and they go and they proclaim peace, and they're in the power of the Spirit. And chains that are so hard to see that the people who have them don't know they're enslaved are liberated. Demons are cast out. Purification happens everywhere. And they come back and they say, Lord, the demons obeyed your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Friends, this is the place that has the power of the Spirit. There is no chain here, invisible or visible. No handcuff that chafes or doesn't chafe. chafe. No bondage that is so light or so heavy that the Spirit of God cannot destroy it and break down the shackles and set us free. And that's God's offer to us today. Do you want to be free? And if so, then come in to the peace, the shalom of God. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are people so prone to Stockholm syndrome. We confess that there is an enemy out there that is working to enslave, to corrupt. We confess that sometimes he gets in. His minions find their way in. God, grant us by your spirit clear sight to examine ourselves, our church, our nation, and to see where the corruption and the rot of sin has taken hold. And God, by the power of your spirit, call us to pray. Break those chains, God. Set people free. Awaken us. God, you who brought the people out of Egypt for shalom, bring us out of spiritual bondage for the abundant life of your son. God, we too wish to claim with Jesus that we have seen Satan fall like lightning from the sky. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.